that sort of terrorism had, had been going on for decades, for generations in this part of the country. Just the, the weight of white supremacy that, that guided the entire society down here. And I think, you know, when you look at this specific case, and when you look at the ways in which law enforcement, the essentially the district attorney, when you look at the fact that the state troopers, all of these parties working in concert, uh, you can't help but feel that that state-sanctioned and state-endorsed terrorism, it didn't, it's not that it's repeating itself, it's just that it's evolved and morphed into something else. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, August 17th, 2019. Andrew Beck Grace and Chip Brantley are the creators of the NPR podcast audio documentary, White Lies. The series, if you haven't listened to it, deals with the murder of Reverend James Reeb in Selma, Alabama during the civil rights era and is an incredible historical investigation of an episode that many people had forgotten. I asked Andrew and Chip on the show because I thought their show had remarkable soundings in contemporary discussions of domestic terrorism, of white supremacist violence, and a lot of things we're still talking about today. And we talked about all of it. We talked about how to tell a story of a murder that happened a very long time ago, about the FBI's role in investigating the crime at the time, what they did badly and what they did right. And we talked about what it all says about terrorism today. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 444, Chip Brantley and Andrew Beck Grace on White Lies. So I want to start by having you guys just kind of introduce yourselves a little bit because, you know, this project that you've done, which some of our listeners will have already heard and some of them this will be the first time that they've interacted with at all but I want to sort of give a sense of who you guys are so just start by telling us a little bit about yourselves my name is Andy Grace uh, Andrew Beck Grace um, and I am a filmmaker by trade I also teach uh, filmmaking and journalism at the University of Alabama and I'm from Alabama originally left the state for a while for graduate school and sort of piddled around and then decided to come back to the South with very mixed emotions and have, I think, in a way, been trying to make some kind of work that speaks to those mixed emotions and the complicated legacy of Southern identity, white Southern identity, that is, ever since. So that's that's kind of who I am and what I do. Yeah, and this is Chip Brantley. And um, for better or for worse, uh, Andy and I have very similar backgrounds. Uh, we're both from Alabama, from Birmingham. My background's more in print journalism. I've done all sorts of... of uh, different types of projects over the years, but uh, but I too teach at the University of Alabama. Andy and I, in fact, teach a class together, uh, a, a um, radio production storytelling class. And um, yeah, so I've, I was born here, moved away as well, and then have been back in the state for a decade, and have similar interests in sort of trying to reckon with this place and and, um, and our history. And how did you uh, come to be doing? a podcast series for NPR on a 50-year-old political murder. Yeah, it's a quite circuitous route, but we basically it started as a as an interest in 2014, uh knowing that the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act was about to happen and 
Chip and I were sort of hunting around. We, we, were, we were close friends and wanted to work on, on a story together and had very similar interests and similar kind of sensibilities for the stories we're interested in. Uh, and because of that 50th anniversary, we decided to maybe think about doing something that was related to the struggle for voting rights and maybe even something in Selma because of uh, the march on the, on the Edmund Pettus Bridge that became Bloody Sunday and the visibility of that as it related to the voting rights movement. And we actually started talking to a friend of ours, uh, Jerry Mitchell, who I'd, we both know you know, over the course of years and have really been in awe of this reporter based in, in Mississippi. And I, I spoke to him about cold cases because we, we didn't really... Jerry does a very so Jerry Mitchell's this uh, reporter who worked at the Clarion Ledger for a number of years and was instrumental in reopening uh, some really big cases: the murder of uh, Medgar Evers, the 16th Street Church bombing. His reporting and his gumshoe work basically helped prosecutors bring some of these folks to trial, and it was really kind of an extraordinary thing he'd been able to do throughout the 90s and the early 2000s. And we were not thinking or even expecting to do something like that, but we were interested in what the legacy of these old unsolved cases meant to a community. And I think initially that's what we were, they, what we were interested in. So Jerry told us that, uh, that he, you know, if we were looking for a case, a great case to do that he had never really spent much time looking into was the case of, of Jim Reeve. And this man, this uh, Unitarian minister who'd come uh, from Boston uh, to join the marchers after Bloody Sunday in a show of solidarity. There were hundreds and hundreds of uh, clergymen and, and some women who came to Selma um, after Bloody Sunday to show support and to eventually go on to do the successful march from Selma to Montgomery. And he was among those men, had been murdered, uh, beaten by a group of men outside of a side of a cafe in Selma uh, on the Tuesday after Bloody Sunday and died two days later. There was a trial in, in six months later, seven months later. And then after that trial and the acquittal, the, the case essentially went cold and no one really ever looked into it again. But Jerry told us he had this unredacted FBI file, which was a really extraordinary piece of information to have. And he offered it to us and let us kind of just go to town with it. So that's that was the roots of this project, which was a, quite a while ago, and we long, complicated story. We set this we set this story down for a year or two, working on a completely different story, which we ultimately took to NPR as a podcast. And as one does, I, we told them about other stories that we had been working on and thinking about, and they saw this civil rights story and said, well, "Tell us more about that." And that's ultimately how we came to make the podcast. Yeah, I mean, this is this is spring of 2017, so the elections just happened. Dylan Roof has just happened. Things were in the air to make this story really feel relevant in a way that uh, perhaps it just wouldn't if you looked at it out of context. Incidentally, the other story we were working on involves Cuban detainees uh, in the U.S. immigration system, which is something we'd love to talk to you about at some point off the podcast. Uh, yeah, so let, let's bracket that for a different conversation. So... You first focus on this in 2014. You release White Lies, the, the, the podcast series, this year. How consistently – you say there were significant breaks over, over the period of time. But that's, you know, that's a long you know, sort of five years of work. How much of that time have you guys spent on uh, digging and recording sound and – and research on on this particular project. We well, we you know when we the, when we first started this fall of 2014, we worked on it consistently full time uh, for about seven eight months, and we actually produced a, a short documentary, a New York Times op doc, 
uh, that focused on the life of Clark Olson, who was one of the men who was with Jim Reed the night that they were attacked and, and Reed was killed. And the focus of, of really Clark's memory of that night involves the way in which the death of Jim Reeve, a white man who came from the North to the South, was treated differently nationally and politically than the death of Jimmy Lee Jackson, who was a local black man who lived in the town of Marion, uh, which was about 30 miles from Selma. And really, you know, that, that short documentary focused on Clark's trying to grapple with the the way that the country handled the death of a white man versus the way the country dealt with a, uh, the death of a black man. So we finished that project, and in the course of doing that, as Andy said earlier, we weren't really thinking that there, we were going to find a break in the story. But in the course of doing that short doc, we came across new information and pursued that, um, you know, I would say, while we were working full-time on another story, we pursued that aggressively, but... Uh, less regularly. So we would go to Selma uh, every couple of months and knock on doors and talk to people. And we'd identified people who, I, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but we'd identified people who were instrumental in the story, whose testimony and whose, whose on-the-record testimony was instrumental in our ability to even tell the story. We had, had identified most of those people, and it just required really years of continuing to show up and knock on their door and chit-chat and and try to encourage them to to tell us the truth, which they finally did. And and part of I'll just I'll I'll just add real quick that part of that uh, that pause was also for listeners of the show or people who might listen to it now. Um, this a really complicated and and troubling from a journalistic standpoint, a troubling story to tell to try to figure out exactly how to go after something that happened so long ago when so many people who might know something or might have participated are either dead or in the final stages of their lives. And, and so I think some of the messiness of what we found, it, it complicated exactly how we tell the story. And so once NPR got really interested in this particular story, we always knew there was something that we couldn't let go about this story, but we didn't exactly know how to tell it. And I'll, I'll say it was really the vision of Nigeri Eaton who brought this story on board and said, this is the story for this particular moment. This makes sense uh, for you to tell and for um, for us to, to make this happen now. And the, the, the caveat was, if you get these people on the record, it will go forward with the story. And that was, that was huge because it took months for us to get some of these folks on the record. So it was a process that was, we initiated and, and cultivated for a long time, but ultimately it was the the desire of NPR to see this story and then and really giving us the confidence to, to pursue it. So there are, I mean, I don't want to deal in spoilers either, but it is safe to say that you guys brought an immense amount of new information about this uh, very old case and how it happened and what happened and who was involved and who did what to the table. And I, I down to the level of, I think it's sort of fair to say sort of solving, at least for historical purposes, if not for for legal or criminal purposes, solving the question and unraveling the question of who did this and why. And I certainly commend, I mean, I, I, I obviously wouldn't be doing this conversation if I didn't think this was something that people should listen to. But for, for present purposes, I want to focus on two aspects of this that are a little bit more philosophical and almost ideological and ideational and less kind of forensics and narrative. And one is 
One is the question of the relationship of this story to an issue that we're talking a lot about this week, which is domestic terrorism. And the other is the question of the creation of narrative around these these incidents, the way we train ourselves to lie to ourselves about incidents like this. And because I think both of these are things that are happening in a, you know, they're of enormous contemporary relevance. And so I want to focus a little bit on them. You know, let's talk about domestic terrorism first. When I listened to this podcast, my first reaction to this was that it was, you know, an, an incredible portrait of a of a period of time in which terrorism was really used by the state apparatus as a means of political repression. And, you know, I'd sort of always been aware of that in an atmospheric sense um, and as, as a historical matter. But the picture is very vivid here of the relationship between state actors, local terrorists, and a kind of apparatus of intellectual support for both the terrorism and the individuals who engaged in it. And so I guess my question to you guys is, am I being ahistorical and sort of mapping contemporary rhetoric and vocabulary onto a period that it doesn't fit with easily? Or is this a reasonably direct analogy. Yeah, no, I think it's absolutely a direct analogy. I mean, I think, in fact, you know, just the word terrorism itself, as it relates to this specific event, uh, was used by a, a kind of extraordinary television journalist who covered the trial in December 1965. And to watch this archival footage of this, I believe it was an ABC journalist, who a reporter who was there covering the trial in December of 1965 to hear him use the word terrorism just sort of shocked our ears basically because of course we we use that now you know left and right but of course yes I mean a we should just say that 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 sort of terrorism had terrorism had been going on for decades for generations in this part of the country just the 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 weight of white supremacy that that guided the entire society down here. Uh, and I think, you know, when you look at this specific case, uh, and when you look at the ways in which law enforcement, the essentially the district attorney, when you look at the fact that the state troopers, all of these parties working in concert, uh, you can't help but feel that that state sanctioned and state endorsed, uh, terrorism, it didn't, it's not that it's repeating itself. It's just that it's evolved and morphed into something else. So I think, I think the direct analogy between what's happening now, or not even analogy, but the direct link between what's happening now and that time is very clear if you just continue to follow the story and not leap around in history. So flesh that out a little bit. When, when you say the direct link between what's happening now and what was happening then, what exactly do you mean by that? Well, I think, I mean, one way to think about it is uh, one of the things we, we included in the show a little, I mean, this is, your question is, uh, is really was forefront in our mind the entire time we were making the show. And we don't go 
to any lengths to tell that to the listener because we were we were really intending for that to be brought out by the material without a lot of commentary from us. But one of those places where we where we we hoped and it some it has succeeded because a lot of people, especially historians, have pointed this out, is this letter from a really well known um, uh, white supremacist, uh, uh, the heir to a. a, a department store fortune in Selma, um, who wrote a letter in defense of the men, actually soliciting funds. He wrote this letter to the paper soliciting funds for a defense fund for the men accused of attacking Reeb. And in it, he closes the letter by saying, Selma is not fighting uh, for itself alone. It is fighting for all that is good and right about Western civilization. Uh, I'm paraphrasing there. I can't remember exactly if that's the word, but he uses the phrase Western civilization. It's been remarkable to me in the last week to see people cite that particular letter on Twitter uh, from the show to to talk about the same kind of rhetoric that's happening right now uh, in the country about about these recent domestic terrorism, uh, these mass shootings that are that are affiliated with white supremacist belief systems, and the and the use of that of that notion of white supremacy, and I, I we feel like we've done some small thing by reminding people that that didn't just start in the two thousands and and in the last ten or fifteen years, but it really has well earlier roots in this country among white supremacist thinking. So I think that's one of those threads that goes through for sure. Right. So I, I that actually brings me kind of elegantly to this kind of question of the sort of intellectual ecosystem of consent for for this kind of violence and terrorism. You know, I I don't want to overdraw this analogy because I, a, because I, I think there are important differences, and B, because I don't want to be inflammatory. But there's an interesting relationship between that letter that you describe, which is, as I recall from the podcast, written by this department store owner and published in a local newspaper that he essentially controls to one degree or another. Is that, is that fair? He didn't, uh, didn't necessarily control it, but was probably its most active uh, op-ed writer. You know, he never had to he never had to fight for inclusion in the paper. Let's put it that way. And so, you know, and this letter, as you guys describe it, creates what becomes this the white narrative in Selma that has survived up until the present day. And I'm really interested in the relationship between that and, say, the Breitbart kind of Fox News media ecosystem today, which is not, you know, to be fair, is not actively defending mass shooters, for example. It's not claiming that, you know, uh, the El Paso shooter, you know, didn't do it and that it was done by some other people for other reasons. But it is working on an ecosystem of misinformation that has something to do with the permission structure that people are operating in. Um, And at the more extreme ends, things like Infowars, right, there is actually an active denial, for example, that the Newtown uh, victims are real, right? The whole sort of crisis actor thing. So there, there, there is this ecosystem that denies, rewrites, or cultivates history in a fashion that interacts with these very, very violent incidents in a way that alleviates people's sense of it as something that the community is responsible for or needs to account for in in, in some respect. And I'm 
I'm interested in your, you know, this shows up in the title of the podcast, White Lies, right? You're, you're talking about the ecosystem of misinformation. And so I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on how this relates, to what extent it relates to the sort of contemporary uh, right-wing misinformation ecosystem that it, and its relationship to contemporary violence. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a uh, one thing in particular. I I, I remember at one point, uh, I was at the the archives at the University of Alabama, looking at a, a number of publications that had to do with what we kind of call the revisionist civil rights history. So they're actually recently, I just saw a bunch of photographs of these, and they're really fascinating. I mean, they're terrifying and and terrible, but they're also really interesting pieces of, I don't know, of iconography of that era, really. But one of them is called Sex and Selma. The true story behind the civil rights movement. Uh, the the sheriff actually wrote his own history of the civil rights movement called uh, "I Saw Selma Raped" was the name of of that book. Um, and the the boilerplate at the beginning of all of these is exactly the same kind of rhetoric that con- that you see on a lot of these um, these kind of conspiracy theorists and and some of these right wing news news sites now that we are not here to tell you, we're not here to interpret the facts for you because you can do that yourself. What we're here to do is lay out the facts for you because the media has come along and distorted what really happened. And it's our job to show what what truly happened. In fact, the state of Alabama uh, participated in creating a, a, basically a mental hygiene film that was a rewrite of the civil, of the civil rights era. Um, it's a really remarkable thing. You can find it online. Uh, the name escapes me right now, but um, maybe if you have show notes, we can put a link there because it's a really fascinating thing to look at. It's available on the Alabama State Archives website, but it's filled with this rhetoric of, well, they said they were here for peace, but what were they really doing? And it was all about drugs and interracial sex and and theft and violence and all these people. And Viola Liuzzo, a, a, a woman from Detroit who'd come down to help the marchers, this this mother, she had left her children and she was found without her panties on and when she was murdered outside Selma. It, it becomes less about the men who shot into that car and killed this mother and more about uh, aspersions of her character. Um, and this feels so similar to much of the rhetoric uh, that we see today. And I, to be honest with you, I'm not sure. I, it didn't start in Selma. I don't know exactly where it started. I can understand the ideological and intellectual roots of some of this stuff, if you want to call them intellectual. But I but to to, to sort of think about where white supremacy comes from, I understand that, but how this rhetoric gets established the way that it did and how it is the same exact rhetoric happening today, I feel like that's a question better answered by a historian than it is by me, but it is it is shocking to see how similar they are. Yeah, you know, just speaking to the the what we call the counter-narrative uh, in the show, the, this, this lie that was articulated and refined in 1965 and, and then inherited and just passed down over the years until now. I mean, I heard, I got a an email, an email this uh, past weekend from a friend uh, from high school who ran into a buddy of his from Selma this past weekend, mentioned the show, and the friend who is, you know, in his early 40s said, I don't care what they say, that man was killed on the way to Birmingham. I mean, just basically a, a guy who was not alive in 1965 who articulated this counter-narrative, I'm sure, as it was, you know, he's just speaking verbatim what was said to him by his parents or his grandparents. But one of the things that, that was interesting, we talked to an attorney in Selma who was a child who was a, you know, 10 or 11 in 1965, who said that these counter-narratives, these other stories that could be told to absolve not only the men who committed the crime, but also Selma itself, 
he said that they were floated around town, you know, after the, after the murder. Basically, once these guys were charged with this crime, these rumors were spread to sort of see what would take, what would take, what would take hold, you know, what, what could people plausibly tell themselves and believe that would pass muster, that could get these people absolved, and that could be articulated out into the world so that it wouldn't seem as bad as it did, you know? And they, to his, to this, what this guy said, and we've, we've kind of heard this from other people, is that a lot of different things were floated out there. And the thing that they settled on was that, you know, the ambulance ride, uh, this is getting into a little bit of the weeds of the story, but basically there was a long, complicated route getting Jim Reeb from Selma to the uh, medical care to a hospital in Birmingham the night of the attack. And they, they decided to focus on that. And that, that became the centerpiece for this defense that, again, would absolve the men, but also would, would absolve Selma. Because basically what the counter-narrative espoused, what these people espoused, was that, was that the movement itself, that, that, the, that Reeb's companions or some foot soldier in the movement had somehow, between the time Jim Reeb was attacked in Selma and the time Jim Reeb arrived in Birmingham, inflicted some other injury, some greater injury that was ultimately the fatal injury. So they basically said that Reeb had been killed by the movement so that voting rights, the voting rights legislation that was sort of brewing could get passed, so that, so that Lyndon Johnson, the president, could have a moment, a political moment, to step in and introduce the Voting Rights Act. And what ends up happening in August of 65 is that the Voting Rights Act is passed. And so by the time the trial comes around several months later, the defense attorney can say, they, they, they killed this man to have the voting rights legislation passed, and look what happened. They got the voting rights legislation passed. They got the Voting Rights Act. And so it confirmed something to those people who needed, who had a certain worldview. And this reality that had happened, uh, basically... The, the, the conspiracy theory sort of mapped out a reality they could believe in that stuck to, that met their worldview, that adhered to the worldview, and that had just enough basis in reality to be true. And I think you see that again and again and again today. Okay, so let me focus on an example that I've been, for my sins, uh, more involved with than I would like to be, that I think tracks this pattern rather precisely, which is the development of a counter-narrative around uh, the Trump-Russia investigation, where a bunch of possible responses are floated over a period of time. And eventually, the one that seems to work is that there is a kind of deep state in the FBI that decides to target the Trump campaign for surveillance and does uh, a whole lot of nasty um, machinations. And this has all, of course, something to do with Pete Strzok and Lisa Page's text messages and, you know, George Papadopoulos in abroad. And it actually starts to catch on in exactly the way that you are describing and creates exactly the kind of counter-narrative for very large numbers of people that allow them to not focus on the actual story and the actual fact. And just like you're describing, it has just enough basis in fact that it is not, though false and though not plausible, it has enough plausibility in order to move large numbers of people and, frankly, distract large numbers of people from the reality that they're confronting. And so one of the things that, as I've watched this story develop, 
I, you know, watched it with a kind of, well, this can never catch on because it's so ridiculous. And then I listened to your podcast and actually one of the horrifying things about it is that not only does the counter narrative catch on, but it becomes the narrative for very large numbers of white people in Selma for 50 years down to the point that you guys talk to people who report it as though it's obviously true. And so I'm, I guess my question is, what are the conditions that make a community ripe for a counter narrative like that that has no basis in fact or extremely limited basis in fact that make people vulnerable to it and make them uh, and, and make it as sticky as that one became. In other words, when, when does a disinformation campaign like that work? I think, I mean, it's a great question. It's something we've thought a lot about um, and, have, and have, have talked at length about um, some, with some of our collaborators too, how to articulate exactly what you're saying. I mean, to answer your question specifically, I think that those stories work uh, in communities where the need to believe something that has formed your identity is greater than the need to believe something that might be uh, more equitable and just for for all the folks in a community. And that sounds very complicated and strange to say, but it's essentially white supremacy in in, in our case. It's it's something a little different, I think. Although I'm I'm sure there are much much to link white supremacy with this belief about the Russia scandal as well, about who has power in a in a in a society, about who can challenge that power, about what we value about those who are in power. I, I mean, I think. How we get to the place where people can believe that is really contingent upon the the communities that believe that. But I will say something we've thought a lot about, something that's fascinating to me about this story, is that really what we're talking about is the nature of narrative. What happened in the Reeb case was very complicated. There was this long ambulance ride. There was he didn't die as some as a city council member pointed out in an open letter to the filmmakers of of the movie Selma. Jim Reeb did not die in Selma, which is sort of absurd to think about because, of course, the attack that killed him took place in Selma. But factually, he's right. He died in Birmingham two days later, not even on the night of the attack. So what could have happened? These complications in that story make it not only hard for us to know what really happened, but they they provide a fertile territory for this counter narrative in our case and in the Russia story to to kind of happen, right? Because the truth requires you to understand and believe complex systems. I think this is true of so many of these stories. For instance, in the Russia story, you'd have to understand the complex systems of how the FBI and the CIA operate. You'd have to believe that those things are true, that those histories are true, that those people whose testimony about their decades of career work in those institutions, that those things were true. But it's much easier to believe this other thing that, that connects some certain dots that don't require me as a, as a believer of that story to have to know all that back history. And I will say that, you know, the biggest point of this whole show for us is that that is exactly how white supremacist belief systems operate for so many Americans, a great majority of white people, I believe. And, and to some extent, even brown-skinned people in this country have adopted some belief systems of white supremacy because it is so instrumental in the history of this country and so embedded in the story of this country. And so, for instance, you'll say to someone in Selma, a white person in Selma, well, what happened here? Uh, and why is the city on such a decline? And they will tell you black leadership happened. That is what the decline is, that there is terrible black-on-black -black crime in the city. 
And they are right. The economic decline of that city is concurrent with the black leadership of that city. That factually speaking, it is a lot of black on black crime. That is all the murders that happen in Selma right now, not all, but a vast majority of them. And those things being true, it is easier to believe that that is about black inferiority than it is to believe all the complex systems at play that have created the economic structure to be the way it was, the political structure to be the way it was, that when that black political power came to that city, the white economic power retreated, that there, you would, you would just, it would require you to know and believe and be willing and open to believing such complex things that that really make for a much better story, but at the end of the day, a much more complex narrative than simply believing something that you have been told your entire life is true. In our case, that's the truth that white people are superior to black people. That is a simple thing to believe, and you can see evidence of it everywhere if you choose to look at it that way. And that's that's really the thing at, at heart, and that the real problem for us who who really seek a more just and equitable and fair world is how do you challenge these stories that are so embedded in the psyche of people. Yeah, just to quickly add to that, I think the question that we ask ourselves a lot, especially at the beginning of this, when we were structuring and thinking about how to write it, and I think it's the question that haunts us today with, for example, the the, the, the Russian interference in the election and, and what, the, what the full story is there, is that how do you get people to a point where they can hear the story you're telling them? And that involves you know, thinking about what those people, the, the story that those people already believe about the thing that you're telling, the, 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 the disposition and, uh, of, of those people to, to even hear what you're, where you're coming from in the first place. And so I think it's, it's something we struggle with now even more uh, uh, you know, than ever because of just all of the noise. You know? But I think that it's like the, 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 the question of the narrative is how do you get people to the point where they can even be receptive to what it is you're about to say? I want to talk to you about the role of the FBI in this story, which is a, a pretty complicated role, right? I mean, on the one hand, it's basically, as you guys describe the story, the only significant law enforcement check on the lawlessness of the local state infrastructure and local county and, and city infrastructures of, of violence. On the other hand, you know, it doesn't really do the job in, a, in any kind of ultimate sense, either because it doesn't want to or because it has important jurisdictional barriers or both. And that also has interesting parallels to the present period in which the Bureau is the principal law enforcement agency associated with investigating uh, at least those hate crimes that trigger federal jurisdiction and basically all terrorism cases. And so I'm, I'm interested for your sense of the institutional performance of the Bureau in this context. This is the, the heart of the Hoover era, right? So it's like it's a, it's a bad period in the FBI's history. How'd they do? You know, I mean, I think on the one hand, uh, you, you're right. It was a, the, that period, when we look back at that period, when we look at the FBI overall in that period, it uh, doesn't look good. But the agents who were on the ground in Selma, I will say, and we talked to uh, I think several of them, uh, they're not uh, a bunch, they're not very many who are still alive, but uh, of those who are still alive, we did talk to some of them. And just looking at this unredacted file, they did do a pretty great job at the time of actually knocking on doors and investigating it 
for something that was not yet in their jurisdiction. So the, it's a little complicated, but basically it was a, you know, the three men who were arrested in 65 were tried in state court. The Department of Justice had a federal case, civil, a civil rights case looming for several years after that and, and eventually dropped it. So, you know, those agents, they may not have been necessarily in favor of what was happening in Selma in terms of the, the civil rights movement. They may not have been in favor of the civil rights movement at all, but they did do a competent job of investigating it so much so that we had a really good roadmap when we got this file 50 years later and began looking into it. I'm interested in your sense of what ultimately prevented them from, they do a competent investigation, they do a professional investigation, they enough competent and professional enough that it provides you guys the roadmap for your work 50 years later. What ultimately prevents them from doing the job successfully, given the relatively strong groundwork that they laid? Yeah, I mean, basically, they, they, they created a game plan for a law enforcement official, in, the, in this case, the district attorney, for someone representing the state, to take the ball and run into the end zone. I mean, that's, that is essentially what they did. They even produced a, this, this memo, which is actually the file we have. So the, the actual full FBI file is potentially longer than the file we have a copy of. But the copy of the file we have is the copy that was sent to the prosecutor by the bureau. So what, what ends up happening is that that prosecutor ultimately decides to do very little with the information in that file, you know, calls a, or tries, I guess, to call a couple of witnesses who the FBI interviewed. And for a variety of reasons, those one doesn't show up. He won't return from Mississippi. There was no extradition at that point for, for witnesses. Um, one uh, refuses to testify and takes the fifth. Uh, the other is deemed incompetent by um, a doctor who never even examined him in the first place and whose specialty wasn't even in mental health and mental illness. Um, so it's a variety of a variety of things stood in the way of the prosecutor uh, really doing anything with the information the FBI had handled. But the biggest thing that stood in the way was he had zero interest in, pro in actually getting a conviction in this case. He actually told um, a reporter for the New York Times who we interviewed, and this, is, this part is in the podcast, that the only reason that he had brought a case in the first place was to get a grand jury to go ahead and put the case on the docket so that he could get the press off of his tail, basically. He had no thought that he could actually get a conviction. And in his defense, although I'm not really a fan of defending this man, it is a complicated story. I mean, it is a story that was witnessed by a lot of people who did not want to talk. This is the same kind of thing that happens a lot today, that you have a crime that takes place and people don't want to tell you what happened because they're trying to protect folks. And a lot of murders go unsolved for that very reason. Including a witness in this case who eventually acknowledges to you guys that she lied to the Bureau. Right. And lied at the land. She actually was one of those who was brought. It's, it's ironic because she was actually called by the defense to be a witness to say that she was on the street that night and that these were not the men who did it. So she was a witness who, to us, told us exactly what she saw and who really did it. But at trial, she had lied through her teeth, basically. And lied to the FBI. And lied to the FBI on a couple of occasions, actually. Um, so, yeah, it's a... It, it, I don't think the, the FBI did not present a perfect case to the prosecutor, but they did, I think, everything within their power or, or nearly everything within their power, given the, the statutory limitations of their ability to go after these guys in, in a court. And I, I will say one of the things we don't really get to explore as much as, as we'd like, partly because it's just a complicated story that's, that's a little off the axis of the rest of the narrative, is that the Justice Department did pursue federal charges for these guys for a couple of years, trying to figure out how could you go after these guys. Um, a couple of court rulings 
came down that, that really made it more and more difficult because there wasn't anything within federal jurisdiction that had happened. You know, the, the city of Selma was under federal protection just a few days after this happened because of the violence that had happened there, but it wasn't the night of the attack. So things like that really limited the Bureau or, and the Department of Justice to actually do anything. We did find, you know, we were we got access to the, the entire DOJ file related to this uh, related to this case, and there was a lot of internal debate about whether they could make the case that the sidewalk of Selma, you know, mere days before uh, there was there was federal protection could could qualify in some way or could could lead to federal charges. And ultimately, they decided that that was not possible. And I, and I also I mean, I'll just add, I think part of the reason they chose or decided it wasn't possible is what I was talking about earlier is the nature of narrative. This is a complicated story. Um, not only do you have hostile witnesses, but the guy does. He dies three days later. It is a complex series of events that take place that result in this man's death. It is because one man swung a club very hard at his head that night on the street of Selma. And if you could get someone to tell you this was the man who did it right around the time that it happened, you could have gotten a conviction. But otherwise, it becomes very complex. And I think the department realized that. It's also worth saying just one more thing, that the in some ways the political will to pursue these sorts of uh, cases, I think, had diminished in some way because because the Voting Rights Act had been passed, because these major legislative victories had been achieved, the, the the movement itself kind of moved on from this area, and I think the federal the gaze of the federal government turned as well, and so I think that had something to do with it. When you look at the FBI now, which you know has matured a lot as an organization and has you know immense investigative capacities. In the contemporary period, how do you assess the Bureau's performance in, with respect to the problem of white supremacy and specifically the problem of white supremacist violence? Yeah, I, I feel like it's a little bit out of my depth to comment on um, simply because I haven't studied it that much. But, I, but, but just to sort of close the circle for the Reeb case, I mean, it, one of the interesting things about the FBI, the contemporary FBI, is this push to reopen a lot of these civil rights era cases. And it's, it, you know, we did, we did a good bit of work on this, and it, it's still a little unclear exactly where to point the finger. But, but essentially, just to kind of boil it down, nothing has come of those investigations, or very, very little has come of those investigations. The, the victories they claim are contingent upon journalists having done a lot of work or local prosecutors having done work. And it, it's, it's, troubling to see how the rhetoric of the federal government's desire through the bureau to solve some of these cases to put to put some sort of sort of closed chapters of our really dark history how it has essentially fizzled into uh there's really no oversight that that has so far as i know no one has asked why why is this program not yielding any results what what is this about i mean there are filmmakers and journalists who are actually working on the story right now so i look forward to seeing what what's going to happen with some of those. But the Bureau's desire to see these cases resolved for the matter of history and for the matter of, of some sort of reconciliation even, or some sort of truth, which has to come before reconciliation, has been there in the rhetoric and, and completely absent in the results. I think, I think part of that, just to be fair, is there's no mechanism for it. There hasn't been a mechanism for it. That's still, given their ability to investigate something, Feel, if you look at what they did in, in the Reeb case, it's just meaningless, essentially. Uh, they just looked at old newspaper clippings, looked at the, the original file, interviewed maybe two people who told them the same bull that they told years ago, and then they just said, well, that's, that's about it. We're going to close it up. 
but if you look at now, I think what, what our Senate State Alabama the Senator, one of Alabama Senators, Doug Jones, um, sponsored a bill that was signed into law this past year that will provide some mechanism for law enforcement, journalists, the public, academics to have access to all these records, these old civil, these records related to these cold cases, in the hopes that at least we can do for a lot of these other cases what we've done with the Reap case, which is to, at least for history, get some sort of definitive, truthful account down so that going forward, we don't have these counter narratives. We just have the one version of what happened, the truth. The podcast is White Lies. The creators are Chip Brantley and Andrew Beck Grace. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. It's been really nice. Enjoyed it. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Hey, folks, I've mentioned this before. I've complained about it before, but the report now has almost as many or maybe more reviews on iTunes than the Lawfare Podcast does. It's only been out a few weeks. We've been out for years. This is getting embarrassing, people. So if you're listening to this and you have not yet reviewed the Lawfare Podcast, shared the Lawfare Podcast on all the social media distribution services you use, get on it because we need you. If you're not wearing Lawfare merch, I want you to go to the lawfarestore.com and buy some Lawfare merch. All right? That one's not that hard. I want you the next time you are out at dinner with somebody to say, hey, did you listen to this episode of the Lawfare Podcast? And finally, I want you to take a moment to tip your hat to Sophia Yan, who is once again performing our music. Our audio engineer this week was Jacob Schultz and Michaela Fogel. The Lawfare Podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. And as always, thanks for listening.